hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up God's word together this morning. Father, thank you for the incredible picture that you have painted for us this morning of what's happening in heaven right now, from Coleman reading from Revelation and then the the beautiful song that we just got to sing that just magnifies your holiness. As Psalm 147 says, praise is fitting for you. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had just now to engage in praise, to recount back to you all that you are and all that you have done for us, Lord. Truly, you are worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all of our worship. Lord, as unrest and uncertainty continues to spin around in our world and as Global leaders continue to make different rhetorical statements. Reminded this morning, especially from the book of Revelation, that all the kings will bow before you, that all crowns will get thrown before you, that in light of your holiness, the only one who is holy, 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 that all knees shall bow and all tongues shall confess that you and you alone are Lord. Lord, I pray for your church this morning, uh, globally, locally, here in Richmond Hill, for other churches that are gathering in our city, our community, our county right this moment. I pray that you in your sovereignty and in your grace would remind all of us that the earth is your footstool, that the heavens are your throne, that you're in control. And I pray that we would reflect that in the way that we live with peace and hope and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 12. We are really starting to come to the last lap here of our series. We we began studying Ezra and Nehemiah back in June, which is hard to believe. I mean, June, July, August, September, now we're in October. I mean, we have really been taking our time here. But Nehemiah chapter 12, and let me try to set up our passage for you this morning. Um, How many of you have ever seen the animated film Inside Out? Show of hands, don't be, don't be scared, right? Okay, I have four kids under the age of nine. Most movies I watch are animated, okay? So Inside Out, if you've never seen Inside Out, let me give you a quick kind of plot summary, okay? So there's this young girl named Riley who is moved from her Midwestern life pretty abruptly to the city of San Francisco all because of her father's job. So that's a, a pretty tumultuous event in the, in the life of this young girl. So her emotions, what joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness are, are kind of on display in this movie, helping her make sense of this transition, okay? But the movie really hinges on the constant friction and really the eventual friendship between joy and sadness. Like, what you see all throughout the movie is that joy and sadness just don't get each other. Like, they're, they're, they just, they're so opposite. I mean, joy is just hardwired to make sure everybody has a good time. Everybody has to stay up if you're around joy, whereas sadness is kind of predisposed to to a bit more melancholy, right? And So her and Joy just kind of have this constant friction. Let me give you an example of their relationship. So one part in the movie, Joy is trying to uh, cheer Sadness up and says, Sadness, just think of something funny. So Sadness goes, oh, you remember that funny movie where the dog dies, you know? And, And Joy just cannot handle it and immediately begins to change the subject because around Joy, like, everybody has to be brought up. Now listen, I believe by nature and by nurture, that some of us are hardwired or just kind of predisposed in terms of our temperament to be more like joy, right? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. We know who you are, okay? Others of us are just a bit more serious, right? Maybe leaning a little bit more towards the melancholic side of things. I think that that is part of our personality, part of our temperament. But is it not true that as believers in Christ, as as Christians, that, that we are exhorted and even called to be a people of joy? 
right? If you survey the scriptures, what you see is that we, of all people, should be characterized as a people of rejoicing. But, but why do we struggle with that, right? If, you're, if your personality doesn't lean in that direction, like why do we as Christians struggle with rejoicing? Let me give you a handful of scriptures just to kind of prove this point that our exhortation is to be a people of rejoicing. Are we seeing Galatians that a fruit of the Spirit is joy? Which means if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, that something that produces out of your life is, is that of joy. Paul commands us in Philippians to rejoice always. And if you're not paying attention, Paul's like, again, I say rejoice. He even says that again in 1 Thessalonians 5. Psalm 32 tells us to be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Romans says that the God of hope will fill us with all joy as we learn to trust in him. David tells us that in the presence of God, there is what? Fullness of joy. That's from Psalm 16. So if you survey the scriptures, what we see is that we, of all people, people who follow God, should be a people characterized by joy. But if you're on the serious side of things, how do we get there? Like, how, how do we become a people of joy, a people of rejoicing? Like, do we need, like Riley in the movie Inside Out, do we need that friend? And you know, as soon as I said that, somebody popped into your mind. That friend who's always up, who's always having a contact, you need them on speed dial to kind of cheer you up. If it wasn't a friend, many of you thought of a coworker, didn't you? I'm not going to mention any names, Coleman. <laughs> but we all have those people, right, in our life that are just predisposed. Is that what we need, to be, be a people of rejoicing? Do we just need to call Coleman and just go, man, cheer, cheer me up a little bit today? Coleman, I'm giving you a hard time. The answer is no. What we're going to see in our text today from Nehemiah chapter 12 is actually the secret of becoming a people of joy. What does it look like to be a people of rejoicing? So let's read. The entirety of our text, Nehemiah chapter 12, I'm beginning in verse 27, and we're going to read to the end, which is verse 47. Forewarning, a lot of these are names, okay? A lot of names. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, all right, so this is what's happening. This is the context. They are all gathering in Jerusalem to dedicate the wall, to dedicate all that had happened in the book of Nehemiah. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephethites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, notice that, Nehemiah is now writing in the first person, okay? This is from his memoirs. He's saying, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests. And certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the sons of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, sons of Mathaniah, sons of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph. So he's given this history, right, this genealogy, because Asaph is famous for a lot of the writings of our, of our Psalms. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azareel, Malal, Galal, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David and the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir, so, right, so the first choir is led by Ezra. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall 
and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred of the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs and those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Menamin, Micaiah, Ilonai, Zechariah, and Hanani with trumpets. And Messias, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehananen, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leaders. And they offered great sacrifices that day. And hear this. This is the core of our text. And they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the services of their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers. There were worship leaders. And there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. All right, just for a moment, I want you to go back with me to, I think, the end of June when we began this series of Ezra and Nehemiah. And just think for a second all that God had done up until this point right? Because this is what the day of dedication is all about. It's a time of reflection. It's a time to look back and to remember all that God had done. Stirring of Cyrus to issue a decree had been fulfilled. The temple had been rebuilt. The altar had been rebuilt. The opposition had been overcome. The project had been financially provided for. The people had been recommitted to the covenant. The city was officially repopulated. All that God had begun in Ezra chapter 1 has now come to completion in Nehemiah chapter 12. So what do the people of Israel choose to do? To have a day to celebrate it. And that's all that a day of dedication is. It's a a date on the calendar, an event where people can come into the city of Jerusalem and to remember all that God had done, right? And what jumps out to me, y'all, about this this passage is is not really like who was there or even that it was a, a moment of dedication what jumps out to me is their tone, right? The, the tenor, the, the temperament of the people on this day. We just read 20 simple verses. Most of them were names. But in these 20 verses, we see the words song and singing showing up eight times. We thanks, see thanksgiving or giving of thanks four times and joy or rejoicing appearing seven times, right? The tone and the tenor of this event, y'all, is, is one of rejoicing. But again, let's go back to the question, what led to this? How did they become a people of rejoicing? Go back to verse 43, and there's the answer. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Why? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. So how does God do that? Because, listen, the God who made them rejoice with great joy is the same God who can make you rejoice with great joy, right? As we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and the same forever. So the God who made them a people of rejoicing is the same God that can make us a people of rejoicing. So I'm going to take the next 30 minutes and give you three ways that God does it, okay? Here's point number one. Rejoicing requires reflection. That's point number one. To become a people of rejoicing, rejoicing requires reflection. In verse 27, they gather this huge throng of people into Jerusalem for the sole purpose of dedicating the wall. 
This is a celebratory event to remember all that God had done for them. And this is what happens, okay? This throng of people comes into the city of Jerusalem, and this, this rubble here is actually the last standing corner of the wall of Nehemiah. In 70 AD, the wall was torn down in the Hasmonean dynasty, so it got broke down again. But this is modern day. You can still see part of the Nehemiah wall. So think for a second that you're part of the returned exiles. You're part of the people who have been a part of this rebuilding. You come into the city for this day of dedication, and you can see this wall. And, y'all, I know that doesn't look like much, but listen to the details of the wall of Nehemiah. It was two and a half miles long, had an average height of 39 feet tall, with a width of nine feet. It contained 34 total watchtowers and had nine extraordinary gates. And as the people of Israel are coming into Jerusalem and they're putting eyes on this wall, y'all, they're remembering. They are reflecting on all that God had done up until this point. First off, they're probably reflecting about the prophet Jeremiah. I'm taking you all the way back to June, okay? This began our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Jeremiah prophesied about the captivity that Israel was going to go under. Jeremiah prophesied that the walls of Jerusalem were going to be destroyed. And you know what Jeremiah received for his prophecy? Torture and imprisonment. The people of Israel wouldn't listen to him. So they imprisoned Jeremiah and they tortured Jeremiah. But even in light of that treatment, Jeremiah continued to prophesy hope. He said, although the Babylonians are coming and they're going to destroy our walls and they're going to take us into captivity, that's only going to take place for 70 years. The exile is going to take place for 70 years, no more and no less. And as they're coming into Jerusalem and they're seeing this wall that they've been a part of rebuilding, they're remembering what happened in that exile. They're remembering how they were treated in the, in the Babylonian captivity. This is from 2 Chronicles 36. That the king of the Babylonians killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into the hand of the king of Babylon. The 2 Chronicles 36. I would imagine if you're walking in, in Jerusalem and you're seeing what has come pla- t- t- taken place in the building of the wall, you're thinking, gosh, how do we get here? We were just taken captive by the king of Babylon, tortured by the hands of the king of Babylon, but now we have this wall. Again, reminded of Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Let me take you down memory lane. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 reads this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to facilitate this miraculous return of God's people back to the city. He had reflected not just on the proclamation of Cyrus to return, but on the provision of Cyrus. All that was taken by the Babylonians from the temple was returned for the people of Israel. They would have reflected on the building of the altar under Zerubbabel, the reflection of of the rededication of God's people under the preaching of Ezra. What would Nehemiah have been thinking on this day? Maybe how God's hand had been on him since the beginning. Standing before King Artaxerxes, making his request to return. And Artaxerxes granting his request and saying, you know what, I'm going to give you provision and protection all the way. Nehemiah thinking about Sanballat and Tobiah. Y'all remember them? Trying to assassinate Nehemiah as he's building that wall. Thinking about how God constantly protected him. Church, all I'm trying to say is that this day of dedication was all about God. And as they're coming into Jerusalem, they are reflecting not on what they had accomplished, but all that God had accomplished. And in reflection, they become a people of rejoicing. Rejoicing requires reflection, but let me give you another just very logical point. Doesn't reflection require time? I think one of the main reasons we struggle to be a people of joy or rejoicing is because we don't give any time to reflection. That we don't spend any intentional time to look back to see what God has done in our story. Instead, we're so consumed on looking forward. 
right? We've bit into this bait, hook, line, and sinker, that happiness is to be found in forward progress, right? We always have to be looking forward, always thinking about what's next. But church, reflection requires time. It takes time to look back on what God has done. It takes intentional time. Void of distractions. How many of you, when you wake up, you know you want to spend time with the Lord, and you know you want to reflect on what He's done for you, but you end up looking at what? Cell phones. Right? And we don't, we don't want to think about what God has done for us. Instead, we're consumed with what Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are up to. Right? If you didn't catch that one, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay? It takes time. It takes time void of distractions. We've bit that bait, gosh, gosh, that, that happiness is found in achieving more. Let me tell you, according to Scripture, happiness is usually found in becoming aware of more. It's very different, right? We believe it's achieving more. Where God tells us it's actually becoming aware of more. Becoming aware more of His hand over your life, His protection in your life, His activity in your life, His voice in your life, His presence in your life. And to become aware of God's activity in your life, it requires a little bit of reflection. And listen, I am preaching to the choir today. Because since I came out of the womb, I have been goal-oriented. Always. Like, since I came into being, I've always thought, I've got to achieve something. I've got to do something. What, what's next? There's always got to be some challenge to keep me going. And my happiness for so many years was attached to whether I accomplished those goals or not. But praise God that in His grace, He broke me of this worldly sense of happiness. And I can tell you where I was and when it took place. Now, it's been a process. But in 2017, I'm going to show you via picture kind of what happened. So most people know that we were missionaries in South Asia. So in 2017, we'd probably been missionaries for a little over a year. And every three months, as part of our, our program for our college students, we would take some college students up to the Himalayas in South Asia. And we would try to in, in kind of introduce these college students to unengaged, unreached peoples that lived up high at altitude. People who lived in a beautiful scenery but had never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, we start in this village that was probably at about 2,500 feet altitude, and we end up making our way to about 10,000 feet, and we would camp out on this little plateau just to kind of have some time of reflection and time with the Lord as we're trying to introduce these students, okay? One morning, 2017, I know exactly where I was. I woke up early because I wanted to spend some time with Jesus in the quiet, in the stillness, surrounded by these beautiful peaks, okay? And I'm going to give you a picture of what that looked like. And yes, I'm wearing Crocs. That's not the point. <laughs> I knew somebody's going to say it, Faith, okay? So we're just going to keep moving, okay? So I'm waking up early. I have my cup of coffee because I do travel with a personal French press, okay? And we're drinking coffee, sitting up here, and I'm just like overwhelmed by the stunning scenery of what we're looking at. This peak in front of me was about 16,500 feet. And I had been drinking coffee for maybe 30 seconds when that fire, that, that goal orientation began to like light up for me. And I thought, I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going I'm to climb that mountain. This is what that mountain looked like. I'm going to climb that mountain. I mean, I knew it. And y'all, as soon as I uttered that thought, God in his kindness whispered. I don't know if it was audible, but I heard the voice of the Lord say, turn around. Just turn around. So I picked up this little camping chair that I was sitting in, and I just turned it 180 degrees, and this is what I saw. That arrow pointed down there is the village that we had started from. And it was almost like the Lord was saying, stop always looking to what's next and just get some perspective. Like, turn around and see where you have come from. Y'all, in the middle of 2017, we had been in South Asia for about a year. We, we had learned language. We had had a baby. We, we had hired a team. We had trained our team. We, we had started a business. We had accomplished so much. But here I am, not concerned with what God had brought us through. I'm only thinking about what's next. And y'all, I wept that morning. 
Because I started looking back over all that God has done, and I'd seen how God had, had supplied his grace, how God's power had been made perfect in our weakness, how God had sustained, how he had been faithful, how he had been kind, how God had done so much. And I'm just journaling all that God had done. And that was the morning God began to break me of happiness always being found forward. In fact, it's becoming aware of more, which, which comes in reflection. Church, I trust that if you could just give yourself just a little bit of time to the discipline of reflection, what you're going to see is God's hand all over your story. You may not even be a believer. You may not even be a Christian. You, may, you might not be interested in this God thing. Try it. You start looking back over your life, and you start seeing God has been with you every step of the way. Reflection is going to produce some rejoicing in you. But point number two for us, rejoicing results in a response. See, as I started reflecting up there in the Himalayas, looking over all that God had done, I began to praise him, to give him thanks for what he had done and who he was in my life. And that's exactly what we find the people in our text doing today. Rejoicing results in a response, and the response is praise and thanksgiving. Verse 27, they bring all the Levites from all over Israel, and they bring them into Jerusalem, and they begin to celebrate with what? Thanksgivings, and with singing, and with cymbals, and with harps, and with lyres. Church, this is a natural response when we begin to give ourselves to reflection. When you begin to notice all that God has done or who he has been in your life, the natural response is for you to open up your lips and give him thanks for it. That's what praise is. Let me give you a definition of praise, okay? Praise is a recounting with your lips of all God is and all God has done. It's an expression. That's why in the Psalms say, open up our lips that we may praise you. That's why Psalm 147 says praise is fitting for our God. When you begin to see who he is and what he has done, you will open up your lips and you'll begin to give praise for him. That's all praise is, but we confuse praise so much. In fact, most of us believe praise and worship to be synonymous, right? But they're not. Praise can be a part of our worship, but they're two distinct things, okay? Praise is the recounting of who God is and what God has done. Worship is a giving of your life. Worship is a sacrifice of your heart, is an offering of who you are into the greatness of God. Praise is just talking about it, giving lip service to it. And we see all throughout Scripture, right, people giving praise to God but actually never engaging in worship, right? Their hearts are still far from God. So you can pray, you can sing the songs that we've sung this morning, and your heart can be totally disengaged, right? You may not be worshiping. You could be engaged in praising, but you may not be in worshiping. Worship is an attitude of the heart. Praise is a recounting of it. And church, in our text this morning, as they reflect on all God has done, they are giving praise to him. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 147. And I'm going to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. But Psalm 147, as I was studying this week for this text specifically, most scholars and commentators that I was reading believe that Psalm 147 was actually penned the day of dedication in Nehemiah chapter 12. That all these singers that came into the city of Jerusalem, this was the outcome of their praise and their worship. They wrote this psalm. I'm just going to read it for you. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Go to verse 2. That's who God is. He, is. he is fitting of praise. I'm going to give him praise for who he is, but I'm going to continue to give him praise for what he has done. Verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. What's pertinent for our, our time today, look at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. 
Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. This is what praise is. It's a recounting who God is and what he has done. What that means, y'all, is that praise is dependent upon God. Right? It's dependent upon who he is and what he has done. So what that also means is that praise is not circumstantial at all. Are you following me? Praise is not dependent upon our circumstances. We don't just praise God when things go well. We actually continue to praise him even when things go poorly, as Psalm 34.1 tells us. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, rejoice always. We will always give praise because praise is dependent upon who God is and what God has done. It is not dependent upon our circumstances. And church, here lies another reason why our lives tend to be void of joy, tend to be void of rejoicing, because our faith is dependent upon our circumstances instead of dependent upon the nature and the deeds of our God. Is that not true? Our faith, our moods, our ability to praise is usually dependent upon how things are going in our life. And y'all, that is not what it should be. I just want you to lift up your eyes. Take your eyes off your circumstances for just a moment and put them on God. Let that perspective reorient you. Even in the bad times, in the bad times, right then and there. Let me give you a secret to building faith in your life. When those bad times come, because they are inevitable... If you in that moment can begin to praise God, open up your lips and praise God for who he is and what he has done in your life, all of a sudden you will begin to feel faith well up in your life. And instead of feeling so defeated, you will start feeling powerful because y'all praise is powerful. When those churches come and you say, God, you are my God. You are my rock. You are my refuge. You are my strong tower. You are my fortress. You will never leave me. You will never forsake me. You are love. You are always with me. Whatever that looks, you begin to praise him for who he is and what he has done. Those circumstances will get smaller and smaller and smaller, and God will start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Church, it's powerful. It's powerful to become a person of praise. I've mentioned this before, but my grandparents were an incredible model of what power of praise looked like. I've said this before, my grandmother passed away in 2015 of leukemia and suffered the last few years of her life. Out at the MD Anderson Clinic in Houston, they were trying everything. Every day at the MD Anderson Clinic, she would quote Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in my stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's powerful, y'all. But my grandfather was also a good example. He was a quiet man, a gentle, meek man. He passed away about this time last year. And the last three years of his life, y'all, were just marred by suffering. He had dementia, bad dementia. If you've ever watched someone suffer with dementia, you know how cruel that disease is. It's cruel. It is painful. And my mother and my aunt sacrificed so much of their lives to care for him in those last three years. And my mom recounts to me how every morning she would go to let the night nurses slip away so that she could kind of take over. And every morning, whether my grandfather recognized her or not, every morning, my grandfather would look at my mom and say, well, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's Psalm 118, 24. My grandfather for, for 85 years had cultivated a life of praise. So even as he's losing your mind, you know what comes out of his mouth? Praise. 
Y'all, that is powerful. There is power in praise, and it's dependent upon who he is and what he has done. It's not dependent on our circumstances at all. Church, our praise is not circumstantial. But let me give you one more reason or one more thing about praise. It is also not preferential. Right? Praise is not circumstantial. It's also not preferential. How often have our preferences for praise actually hindered our ability to engage it? And here's where I'm talking about songs, okay? Now, for the most part, as a young church, our church has been spared from the petty arguments over preferences when it comes to music. But this is a pretty consistent thing throughout churches, right? Music's too loud. Music's not loud enough. I want more hymns. I want more modern. Are there drums in Scripture? Show me where there are drums in Scripture, okay? (laughs) Church, all of these are preferences. Here in our text, in verse 27, they had cymbals. They had harps, which are modern-day keyboards. They had lyres, which is a modern-day guitar, okay? They had singers. They had trumpets. They had choirs. And I'm sure as they're circling Jerusalem, that wasn't the preferred means of praise for some of them. But praise is not dependent upon your preferences. It is dependent upon the character of God and the deeds of our God. And let me just encourage you, if you struggle with that, and you come in here every Sunday morning, and you're worried about the preferences, or you're preoccupied with your own preferences, you're going to miss out on some opportunities to praise. In fact, you're going to miss out on some opportunities to worship. Because your mind is focused, what, on your preferences, not on the character and the deeds of our God. So a result of rejoicing is praise, but is also thanksgiving. Look at verse 31. Nehemiah brings the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and he appoints two great choirs for one singular purpose, and that is to give thanks. Right? Praise, recounting who God is and what he has done. Thanksgiving walks hand in hand. Just start thanking him for it. It's an expression of gratitude for all he's done. And the singers and the musicians, they assemble and they purify themselves. And Nehemiah splits them into these two great choirs, okay, for the sole purpose of giving thanks. And if I could pull up a map, I'd show you, but that would take way too much detail, okay? One choir, led by Ezra, began to move south. It's a two and a half mile walk. One moves south, and they're walking around Jerusalem, and they're giving thanks. The other begins to move north, and what are they doing? They're giving thanks. And in verse 40, they meet together at the entrance of the temple, and what do they do? They give thanks. Rejoicing always results in the giving of thanks. Here's another reason I think we are void of joy and rejoicing is because we give most of our lives to grumbling, not to gratitude. Come on, amen? Nobody else? Grumbling. Y'all, we do not need any help seeing the negative in our lives or in our world. But that seems to be all we want to talk about, right? Let me just illustrate this, okay? If I brought in a a twin bedsheet, Say it is sparkling white. I mean, the whitest twin bed sheet that you have ever seen. And I had four volunteers come up, hold four corners of that sheet, and spread that thing out. And you confirm that is a white bed sheet. But I pull out a Sharpie, and I put one little dot in the top left corner. And then I go, well, what do you notice about that sheet now? How many of you, honestly, would say, that sheet is 99.99% white? No. Everybody would come out of their seat to go, there's a dot on it. Right? We don't need any help to notice what is wrong about something. What we need help is noticing what is good about something. And this is what gratitude does. It trains you to begin to see the good. We spend so much of our time grumbling when we should be giving thanks. Y'all, there's so much more to give thanks to than to grumble about. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 actually tells us what the will of God is. Anybody curious? What the will of God is for your life? 
Let me just read it. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Give thanks. Tell them what it means. Be, be grateful, not grumbling. We've got to practice some gratitude. So rejoicing will result in the giving of gratitude. All right, so where have we been so far? I'm going to give you one more point. Rejoicing requires some reflection. Rejoicing will always result in pra- praise and thanksgiving. But let me say one more thing. Rejoicing will also reap a reward. There is a reward when you become a people of rejoicing. Look at verse 43. Again, the core of our text, Nehemiah 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Church, becoming a people of rejoicing is powerfully evangelistic. What I mean by that is when joy begins to characterize your life, it will be a strong witness to the reality and the goodness of God to others. Right? You ever met someone where, where you could honestly say the joy of the Lord was their strength? I'm not talking about fake upper where you smash a Red Bull and everything has to be positive. I'm not talking about something that is fake. I'm talking about some substance. Like when you meet somebody and they're like, they've got something about them. There's a fragrance that comes off. When my grandparents, there was a fragrance of Jesus Christ that came off of their life. A people of rejoicing is a powerful evangelistic tool. Because people will begin to see there's something different about them. There's a hope that is in them. And all of a sudden, you're going to have opportunities, as Peter tells us, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And you can look at people and say, God has made me rejoice with great joy. God has done it. Y'all, it is so powerful. It's what we saw in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. They've just been beaten with rods and put into the inner prisons fastened with chains. And at about midnight that night, while their circumstances were grim, how did they respond? Prayer and praise. They start singing hymns out loud to God. All the prisoners can hear. And you know what that inevitably led to? The jailer and his entire family put their trust in Christ. Church, there's power in praise. It reaps a reward. This has been the story of the church for centuries, the true church for centuries. The church that has the genuine knowledge of who God is so that gratitude and praise characterizes who we are. There's a story in in the early, early 100s of great persecution against the church in Rome. And the Romans recorded this. I'm going to quote it. These Christians seem to have no, a, a contempt for death. If they tremble at all, it seems to be for joy, not fear. Could that be said about you? Richard Wormbrand in his book, Tortured for Christ, that's a, that's a good read. He was in Romania and he was preaching Christ to the communists and he was in prison and he wrote this. He said, it was strictly forbidden in prison to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing so received a severe beating. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. Did you hear that? Pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. Everybody was happy. (laughs) How does somebody write that? God made them rejoice with great joy. There's a testimony there. I remember a guy in high school who I just mercilessly bullied. Made fun of He was a deep man of faith. And at the time, I didn't know Christ. I didn't have any part of Christ in my life. I made fun of him mercilessly. 
But he responded to me every time with a vivaciousness. There was, there's just something different about it. He had a fullness of life that I knew that I didn't have. Y'all, he had a joy. And his example inevitably ended up leading me to Jesus Christ. My grandparents led people to the faith out at the MD Anderson Clinic because of the way they suffered through that season. Yo, this is the story of the church. You become a person of rejoicing, people notice it. It becomes an opportunity for witness. I know that you two could probably recount person after person after person. I was not intending to do this, and I'm not going to look because it will bring tears to my eyes. Y'all, we had a family in our church suffer greatly over the last several months. And the Gregories are back this Sunday, sitting here in the church. People of praise, people of worship. What an example that was. Y'all, there's a witness here. There is a reward to be reaped when we become a people of rejoicing. So that's how I'm going to conclude this morning. And I'm actually going to give us an opportunity to actually respond with praise. We're going to have a chance to sing a song of response. And I just want to encourage y'all to to engage with with a reflection. Just right now, as I pray, I just want you to reflect on who God has been in your life and what he has done in your life. And then let a response come out of you from that reflection. Okay, so let me pray for us. Why don't you stand up for me? I'll pray for us and our team will come back up and lead us. Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for the way that you have made me and many others in this room a people of rejoicing. We don't will ourselves to it, Lord. Even in in spite of of dark and difficult circumstances, you have made us a people of rejoicing because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. You've shown us who you are, that you are a God always ready to forgive gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. You've shown us what you do. You fulfill your promises through Jeremiah and Cyrus. You, you, you return your people. You protect your people. You build up your people. You provide security and safety for your people. This is what you do. God, I pray that you would help us to slow down as a church here in the 21st century. We just slow down. Give a little bit of time to reflection, to see your hand over our lives knowing that our happiness is found in our awareness of you, not in our achieving of more. Father, break those idols in our life and let us become a people characterized by joy, characterized by rejoicing. Because there's a reward, Lord. This harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Help us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us and may that hope be genuine. Father, praise is fitting for you. And I pray that this morning, as we respond now in praise, that you would receive all the honor all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.